2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. The Lord be with you. If we haven't, if we haven't met, my name is Tim, and I love fall. Right, shackets and cider, it's, it's my favorite, it's my favorite, hands down. And with fall comes a certain set of emotions. I don't know what they bring up for you, but for me, one of the top emotions is, I don't even know if it's an emotion, but is nostalgia, right? I just go for drives in the fall, and I make my kids listen to my music, which they now call oldies. Uh, so we're driving this week. And I'm putting on some good fall music. We're, we went to Counting Crows first, right? Really good. And then we moved over to another favorite of mine uh, from the oldies era, uh, Cademan's Call. Any, any fans out there? Oh, yes. There we, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, and a line hit me this week as I'm driving and kind of getting into my reflection of my younger years. And it's this one. It's on the screen. It says, you know, I ran across an old box of letters while I was bagging up some clothes for Goodwill. You know, I had to laugh. The same old struggles that plagued me then are plaguing me still. And there was a tipping point where nostalgia almost turned to despair when I feel, and maybe you do too, or I'm maybe praying the same prayers I prayed 20 years ago. Maybe week after week, we come to the moment of confession and the things that you did and the things you didn't do and left undone are the same. And there's a sense of Disease and possibly frustration that can bleed into places of shame where I just wonder, like, what, what am I even doing? Is progress even possible? Or am I just caught up in the same things I was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Is there hope? Is change possible? I don't want to pray the same prayers I'm praying today in 10 years. As we sit with that, we can see that we're in a larger context, a larger conversation as a church. This is a series we're calling Essentials. This is where we're regathering and refocusing around a number of things, what it means to be core, to be this, the church at Mars Hill. What does it look like? We've looked at, at uh, the triune God, that we are here for God. 
And then we are in the scriptures, right? We are Mars Hill Bible Church, and we also gather to worship. And we are a covenant community, community with promises that means something. And today we look at this idea of transformation, personal transformation, that there's something possible, there's something happening, there's something dynamic, something that is changing in and through the work of the Spirit in us, you and me. And so let's get right to our text for today. This is coming out of 2 Corinthians. So let's bring our questions to it, our wonderings, is change possible and how in the world do I do that, to take part in something called transformation? I think Paul, the author of this letter to the church in Corinth, is bringing a lot of those questions with him as he does this, right? So a little context on this letter. It's 2 Corinthians. The first letter to the church in Corinth is pretty upbeat. He's pointing out some stuff to this church like, hey, you can work on this and this and this, but it's pretty encouraging. Letter number two is, starts in a place of despair, where chapter one, Paul, I think, is feeling some of those things that get dredged up in us. As we look through old boxes of letters and contemplate our old prayers, he's like, Whoa, I, what, what do I do? How can I change? Is there even hope? We think about this in, in the language he uses. I was so crushed, I was despairing of life itself is where this letter begins in chapter one. Not the happiest place. But the letter continues And he knows that bearing in himself the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we do, that something else is possible. That there's a calling for those who follow Jesus that renewal and transformation is a reality that we can lay hold of. And so chapter 3, where our teaching text comes out of today, he's talking about God renewing the covenant, the promise with people which means he is renewing people and all of creation so that we get to chapter five in 2 Corinthians where he says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And so that's the the arc of the, the scriptures we're talking about this morning. From despair to reality and hope that something is indeed possible. And so our text starts with this in, in verse 12 of chapter three. Therefore, we have such a hope. We are very bold. Now, I don't often think about the prayers I've prayed for years and the patterns I've been caught in or the arguments my spouse and I have had for years, the same ones, and I don't get filled with hope. But I want it. And it's if there's something here that Paul is putting before us, like there is hope, and it makes us bold. So that's kind of a posture it feels, feels a little uncomfortable, but we're called to it in the midst of this particular text. Hope that transformation is possible. It is a bold claim that we're making as a church and that all of Scripture seems to claim as well that renewal, change, is possible. Now, this is not just that I can be a little bit more well-behaved that I can manage my finances a little bit better, that I can say slightly kinder words or stop swearing as much in front of my kids. Maybe you do. Anyway, like, what is this? It's something deeper. 
It's something more critical to what it means to follow Jesus. Now, this isn't earning our salvation, if that's a question that plagues some of us, right? We see this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been made righteous through Christ's faithfulness, we are able to boast in God's glory, right? So that thing has happened. God has called us and claimed us, but then how yet do we be this term we call in the church world sanctified, transformed, renewed, and changed? And what in the world does that look like? What does someone who's experienced personal transformation, what does it look like in the context of the church? I think it looks diverse as the historical and global body of Christ is. There's not one model for what transformation in Christ-likeness is. But for me, it looks a lot like my grandpa. My grandpa, here he is with two of my kids. He passed away this last year at 95. And I would call him a holy man. A transformed man. But what's fascinating is I try and put those labels on him. I recognize that as he grew in years, he grew in compassion and humility and a quirky quietness that to me resonated with his relationship that was drawing closer and closer to God. And I wonder, as I think about my grandfather as this model of a transformed life, I feel a lot of tension in myself because if somebody were to ask me without much thought, what is a transformed life? I have been conditioned, and maybe you have too, to think about that as someone who has platforms and followers and books and things to say and not a quirky, quiet, humble, gentle soul. And the same question gets asked of Jesus, even by his disciples, to the end, Lord, when are you going to actually do the thing and get popular and get big and get famous and take over the world? And Jesus continues on living a radically transforming life in the quiet, gentle, powerful, profound way that he does. And so I think we need to own that we have been formed to see the transformed life in a distorted way. What do you think of as the person who's living a transformed Christ-like way? Christ-like life. What, do we, what baggage do we bring to that kind of question? Then Paul continues. This is a bold claim. The text, as Brian read it for us, talks about Moses and this veil that he had over his face. We don't have time to get into that today. I encourage you to go look at that. But I think what Paul is calling us to at a base level is to say, tear the veil, the mask, the thing that is um, hampering your view of God and what's possible away. We want to see God. That's the bold claim. We want to be like God. Not in the way that we learned the term in hubris in Greek. Maybe go back to high school uh, English class. 
We're not talking about that. We're not talking about Achilles and Homer and this idea that I can be a God, but we can be like God in a radically different way to be like Jesus, not just slightly tuned up new iPhone 15 versions of ourselves. something deeper and more profound. So let's look a little further at the text. Here we see, now that the Lord is the spirit and where the Lord is, there is freedom. Great. We get freedom. We're Americans. Those of us, right? We know what this is, right? Maybe. This word in Greek is it's fascinating. Elothria. It's used 11 times in the New Testament uniquely. And it is in some ways what we think of it as. Freedom from bondage. Freedom from the narratives that hold us back. Freedom to do something. And here's the, the some things where I think I and probably you miss it too. Freedom to do whatever we want. Freedom to self-develop, self-expression, to be me is what we think this freedom means. But that narrative is crushing us. In this kind of late modern cultural moment, where there is pressure to curate your own story visible to all people and to always be on and performing and posting and have the project self on full display as the pinnacle of our cultural narrative is crushing us. Levels of anxiety, depression, Burnout for young and old are really high. Project self is not the freedom that we're talking about here. Self-transformation by power of self is not what the scriptures are calling us to. It's a freedom then to surrender to something or someone. Another oldie, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. There's a desperation in that that makes a lot of things possible. And we kind of have two choices when we think about our freedom in terms of what does it mean to be transformed. We have striving and we have surrender. Am I doing project self, my way, my will, my strength? Or am I going to do the least American, least modern, least culturally acceptable, encouraged thing and surrender myself to God? One holds up self individuality at a radical cost, and the other is radical self-giving, following the way of Jesus as we see it in Philippians 2 and all throughout the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. So we get to ask questions of each other in the community. How goes it with your surrender? Striving, on the other hand, we know this well. This is the burnout culture, the culture of exhaustion and willpower, and striving in our own power leads to shame, because we fail. 
and we think it's something wrong with us. On the flip side, the surrender gets to this place of sanctification. Be holy as I am holy invites the Lord, knowing full well that we cannot do that on our own. So surrender to me. Take my yoke upon me. Find rest for your souls. It's as if we can add another S. Sanctification then leads to Sabbath. So we're talking about radical freedom here that we radically give away as part of the transformational journey that we're called to. Let's take another look at the text. Let's keep going. So, and we all who with unveiled faces, right, taking off the veil, I want to see the Lord. Us with boldness are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. Here it is, that word, transformed, that we want to hold essential to our community, that change in Christ is possible. This is a, this is a great word, right? It's only used four times in the biblical text. It's uh, metamorpho, right? We see this uh, in the transfiguration text in Mark and Matthew, and one other time, which is in Romans 12, right? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's that same theme again. Something is happening. We aren't staying stuck. Now, this, as you may guess, is the root word that we have for metamorphosis, or Morphin, where we get mighty Morphin Power Rangers to stick with the oldies. But more applicable to where we're going today, we get the metamorphosis of the monarch butterfly, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. We'll come back to the monarch, but look at this. Metamorphosis, as it's used in uh, our own modern dictionary, has a fascinating double-layer definition. It goes like this. It is the process of transformation from immature to an immature form to an adult in two or more stages. Moving from immaturity to maturity. And I love the second definition that we get here. A change in form or nature of a thing into a completely different one by natural or supernatural means. There is something that is able to change. Now, we actually can see this really well, I think, when, when it comes to our, our transformation in Christ through the monarch butterfly. Let's go back to that, right? So the monarch is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I am not a lepidopterist. Maybe you are. Those are people who study butterflies. Don't email me and tell me where I'm wrong. So, you may have seen this. The monarch is kind of this ugly thing. It's a caterpillar. I mean, it's cool looking, but it's a caterpillar. Then it goes into this cocoon where the transformation happens. But it's more than just an interior thing. A couple things happen when it moves into the chrysalis. The chrysalis itself is attached to something. It's attached to something sturdy that can hold the process, that can hold the tension that is happening around it. And I want to say this in our next slide, that I think that thing is the church. It is the covenant community. It is where we come to struggle together. The community of people that's built around Jesus Christ, centered on Christ's gifts to us, an identity given to us in our baptism, where we can hold the struggle together. 
where we can hold the tension of transformation, that messy middle, which may take years or decades for some of us in some parts of our life, where we can hold that together. It's something to attach to that gives structure to our transformation. We need the covenant community, the church. Because it's the context in which this struggle happens. The monarch, you see, goes into this chrysalis. Takes time. Transformation is a process. And then it begins to struggle. Friends, there are times each week when I see one of my kids struggling with something, and I have this decision to make. Do I help? Do I not? Now, if it's going to be something really bad, I'm going to help them. But they've got to build some muscles. And the monarch is the same way. That if somebody was to cut open the chrysalis and let them fall out thinking they were helping, they're actually harming. Because what happens in the process and in the struggle, our muscles are, muscles are built in these butterflies. Neuropathways are built that actually allow them to fly. Fly over, over 2,000 miles each year. So if you see a monarch next summer, be like, how was Cancun, bro? Right? Like, that's what happens. But without that, they can't fly. They can't migrate. And they can't come home. Because the struggle builds them neurologically and physically. That process can't be shortcutted. The process of, and the journey of transformation is not instantaneous. And it's not pretty often. Let's look at this a little bit in the scriptures. Let's look at the book of Ruth. If you want to turn there, that's totally fine. It's in the Shed Bible, Um, in case you wondered. It's in there. Um, This is an Old Testament book. Comes after Judges, in a time when there's turmoil in the land. It's as if we have this story of a young woman who is a Moabitess, meaning she is not an Israelite. She is outside of the covenant community. The family goes, this other family of Israelites goes to her land. She gets married to one of these brothers. Pretty soon in the story, the two bro- her husband, husband's brother and her father-in-law die. She is left on the outside. She then says to her mother-in-law, who's about to go back to the land of Israel, where it seems like there's going to be food and maybe hope and maybe a future, she says, I'm going with you. She makes this claim, says, I'm, I'm, I am coming with you. And we don't know if she really knows what she's saying early in the story. But she says, I'm, I'm, I'm going. I'm making this decision. I'm coming with you. And so Ruth is enveloped into the covenant community, kind of unorthodoxly, as a widow who moves to Israel. And the story continues where they're poor and there's nobody to look out for them. They don't have a lot of food. And so she goes... And she starts picking up little pieces of grain that's left over in a field of one of the distant relatives of her, uh, her husband who had died. And the mother-in-law, Naomi, says, hey, keep going there. Maybe the owner, the, the, the family member, will look upon you with favor and you can come into being protected in the community. Anyway, so he does. This guy's name is Boaz, and he instructs his servants to leave bits of grain for Ruth. And so she begins to collect more and more and more. And eventually, the mother-in-law says, hey, daughter, go out 
and take a huge risk. She has this huge hope, so she makes this bold move, and she says, go to Boaz at night after he's had a big party and a big feast. He's going to be a little tipsy, and he's going to lay down by all his grain to guard it. Go out there and lay next to him. Now, a couple things could happen here. Anything you're imagining could happen here. And yet, what happens is that Ruth is not stoned and killed. That's the risk she's taking by approaching this man in this way. Boaz is reminded of the covenant promise that he uh, took to protect his family and bring the outsider to be insider. And he says, Ruth, will you come be my wife? There's a little more to the story, but that's basically what happens. She the bold claim of hope actually happens. Now, we often think, as I read Ruth, it's like four chapters, it's really short. I think that it happens in like a week, right? Husband dies on Friday, by next Friday she's engaged and she's married to this dude. Just, well, I suppose that could happen in reality television today, but that's not, that's not a thing, right? It takes time. In those four chapters, some scholars think years elapse. Years where Ruth is patiently working and praying and pondering. It's a process of hope for this woman to realize through prayer and practice and provision from the covenant community that she can hold God and hold God's community to their promises. That's really what she's doing. She's not just trying to get a husband. She's not trying to sleep with this dude. She's trying to hold God to God's promise of inclusion and safety and transformation. She has been shaped, as she does these three things you'll see on the slide, over the years, she has been shaped in a process of hope that allows her to risk her life to hold God to God's word. She does these things. She's patient. It takes years. She picks grain Yeah, I needed another P. But really, she's picking grain, which means she's working at mundane things. She's doing the daily bread thing. She's going to a job that's hard or unfulfilling. And in the midst of it, she prays the daily prayers of the people of Israel. And I would imagine that she prays her own prayer that someday, Lord, would this reality come to be. And so she is holding God to God's promises because that's what transforms us. I like how Paul opens our text today. We have hope so we can be bold. So we can hold God to God's promise. We have the freedom, the invitation in Christ to say, Lord, you said, you said this would be blank. You said that I would be loved, that I would be cared for, that you would be with me. One of the things you notice as you read the prayers of the Old Testament and read through the Psalms is that people pray prayers of consternation, anger, and conviction. Say, Lord, where are you? Because you said this. And if you're in a place of praying those prayers, please continue, for God is faithful And the journey of transformation happens, but not on our timing. But God is at work, as we see that in the book of Ruth. That our hope is not in vain, that we may act boldly. 
So personal transformation. We're not Ruth. We're not a butterfly. What do we do? How do we seek transformation together in the context of the church? I think we make a plan. We, we do this as a church. Here on the slide, you'll see a little bit of our discipleship plan. This is something that we continue to map out and say, here are some ways as a church with a, with a healthy rhythm and pattern that we can be formed into the likeness more of Jesus Christ as a community. They're not just like class offerings that are neat. We're not just trying to produce content. There's a plan. And I think um, in a way that parallels that, you too as a follower of Jesus, can have a, a plan. We make a plan, and it has to do, here's an easy way we can think of it. Make a plan for transformation, knowing that God meets us all in different ways at different times. But this plan could include people. Remember, the chrysalis attaches to the branch. We, in our transformation and struggle, attach to the community. Who's with you in your journey of transformation right now? Who do you have alongside of you? Heard this great analogy this past week that if, if we have about a dollar's worth of relational currency, we have probably, some of us have a hundred pennies. People we're connected with on social media, people, friends maybe at work. If we're lucky, we've, we might have 10 dimes. People we know their name and a little of the story where we, could, we know a little bit more about each other. It's a possible place for encouragement. But very, very few of us have four quarters Maybe four people, two, three, four people who are deeply invested in our life and can journey along with us. So who are your people in this journey? It's a complex question. Many of us would say, I don't really know. And that's a mix of who's around me, who's safe to be vulnerable enough with, what kind of effort am I putting into these relationships? I don't say that flippantly. But it's a question that we ask as we pursue transformation together is who, who are my people in this with me? And if that's an easy question to ask in the positive answer in the positive way, maybe say, who can I be people for right now in the journey of transformation? It has to do with practices. I grew up in a tradition that if you did anything active in spirituality, you were trying to earn your salvation. So you just didn't do it. So I want to unlink for those of you who think that way that, that effort and earning have to go together. They do not. The journey of following Jesus takes a lot of effort. And it's put into practice. When do you pray? How do you pray? Is it reading? Is it walking? Is it sitting in silence? I would love, like a couple weeks ago I said I would love to talk to you about a personalized Bible reading plan instead of you just Googling things. I would love to talk to you about what are, what's, a, what's a practice plan for me to help work out my faith? What are some ways that I can actually put some tactile things into practice? This has a lot to do with patterns as well, right? Another oldies, there's a season for everything out of Ecclesiastes. There is a pattern for these practices and these people. So in what ways are we pursuing transformation daily, weekly, yearly, and long-term? Now, if we were on a retreat together, we would work through these things one by one and build what we call a rule of life. 
Rule, regula, the Latin word, is the word we get for a trellis that a vine grows on. Or if you're driving out, more and more, if you're driving out that way, you see more and more hops, vines, that have something to grow on. It gives shape to our life. And so a rule of life is something where we look at who are my people, what am I doing with my time and my prayer, and what are the rhythms in which I do this? Because transformation is participatory. It's God's power working alongside us. And then what is our pace? I'm sure Ruth wanted to get married again next week, or at least soon, right? We want this fast. I think people still post Transformation Tuesday pictures on social media. Like, I I swear I have friends who lost like 30 pounds in seven days and got muscles, right? It's, It's wild, and we want this so fast. But one of the words we get from Scripture about pace is, come to me, you who are weak and burdened, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The picture is us being yoked like oxen or a horse with Jesus, which means Christ is setting the pace, a pace that may feel real fast at times, And a pace that's going to feel painfully slow in our own transformational journey at times. Why am I still confessing this thing every Sunday? Why do I feel like there's no movement? Because Christ is setting the pace. Which means Christ's work produces the fruit at the end. So if this is a helpful way for you to think about how, how is my process of transformation? Not that we can control it. Remember, surrender is the first question. Are we surrendering to transformation in Christ? Here's a way that maybe we could help think about that. What is one thing this week, whether it has to do with people, practices, patterns, or pace, that you can do to move into closer step with Jesus? And so as a community, as we look at what is essential for us to be the church in a healthy way here, it's not that we, it's not essential that we grow and transform in the same way or at the same pace or to the same end, other than Christ-likeness. It can't be uniform. But what is essential, friends, is that we recognize that in following the resurrected Christ that all things are possible. That where you are is not where you have to stay. That in our community, in our worship, in our language, in our relationship, we make space for this kind of transformation. That we set an expectation that God is at work as we continue to surrender ourselves to God. For God's glory. Because this is the invitation that is issued to us all throughout the scriptures. To surrender and participation in the transforming work of God as God renews the world for God's glory. Because we're talking about the God here. The one who brings creation bursting forth from eternity and bestows upon those who are searching a home. God who gives fresh identity and a new name to those who feel like they have none or they've worn theirs out. He calls close those who are perpetually far off and says, this is where you can be. Find your home in me. And this is the same God who utters across the void into death, Lazarus, come out, that death doesn't have to define you. And so whatever place where you find yourself in that narrative, 
would you continue to hear the voice of God so that we can move forward as a people who back to the text in 2 Corinthians, who have hope. And so we are bold. A transformed community steps into the world boldly because it is Christ who has called us, Christ who is transforming us, and Christ who is feeding us and sending us into the world as transformed agents of transformation for the glory of God. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. So it was Jesus who was gathering his disciples. And you'd imagine he knows the end is coming. And instead of a glorious last speech on a podium, he gathers them for a meal that's small and close. As if to put before them the pattern and the practice for their own transformational journey. And as they sat down, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they'd eaten together, after they'd had prayers, after they'd had wonderings and conversations together, Jesus takes the cup and he blesses it, saying, this is the new promise in my blood, the new covenant. This is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Christ says, do this as often as you gather, as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so we do. We come each week as a community to be fed, to be filled, to be reminded that the transformation doesn't happen from within ourselves, but comes to us externally in the form of the servant God, Jesus Christ. And it's in our surrender to Christ that we are free. So come and take and eat. We have prayer walls around the room where we would love to pray with you, or if it's just the right thing for you to write a prayer down and put it in the prayer wall. We have folks who would love to pray with you. I know John's back there, somebody by the mural back there, and we would love to pray with you. If there's something that you're just like, I, I, I'm stuck. I need to start this journey afresh. Let us pray with you and name that. So come and be blessed and be renewed and fed for the journey. For all things are ready. So come, friends, and receive who you are, the body of Christ. And we say this as we rehearse the narrative. We're going to rehearse it with our feet and with our hands in a minute, but we rehearse with our voices the great mystery and narrative of our face that goes like this, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen.